Amen. As we began Hebrews 2 last week, we were talking about the fact that there's a nautical metaphor in verse 1, and uh, it doesn't come out in the English, but the Greek makes it clear that uh, there's this nautical term that had to do with uh, bringing a ship into port and drifting. But it says, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we heard, lest we drift away. So we're talking about this drifting away and what it means. And it had to do with a ship that was left let loose from its mooring. And having been let loose, it just drifts. And that's what we were talking about when we ran out of time last time, was the drifting of a ship. Now, this is obviously applied to the Christian life, that if someone becomes a Christian and doesn't pay attention to what we've heard, now what we've heard here, I think, is a reference back to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. What did it say there? God spoke in the, to the fathers in, many, in the prophets in many portions of many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And so we're supposed to pay attention to what God has said. But what He said is written in the Scriptures. We have the Old Testament authoritative Scriptures, and then we have what Christ has said, which is recorded in the New Testament through His words and those written by His apostles. And so if we don't pay attention to that, the danger is to drift away. Now, the, here's that quote from William Lane. It says, The peril against which the community is asked to guard is that of drifting off course. Um, If it is proper to recognize a nautical overtone in prosaking, to hold a ship toward port, or to fasten the anchors to a seabed, the image of a drifting ship carried by the current beyond a fixed point furnishes a vivid metaphor for the failure to keep a firm firm grip on the truth through carelessness and lack of concern. So if we're careless and we are not concerned about what God has said, then we will be like a ship that's drifting off course uh, with the anchor lifted. And so we were discussing that last week. Why would our ship drift off course? I think it's fairly obvious. There's the winds of the... <laughs> Thank you, Dan. <laughs> that, actually, that's a good point because that's another nautical metaphor. Toss that like in the waves. And if you've ever been on a really big lake with a dead motor on your boat, you find out how that goes. You don't have any control over where it's going. And it will drift you of course. And you're pretty helpless because you're going to go wherever the wind and waves take you. You can't, you can't steer the ship. So this here is suggesting that a Christian who doesn't listen to the words of God will be drifting off course. And I think that that's a pretty good description of the 21st century church in America, at least from what I'm hearing from the radio callers and people that email us and people that we hear that 
uh, even when they would like to not drift off course and they would like to be taught the words of God, they aren't. Because church has become something else other than a place where the word of God is taught. And so it's only stands a reason that people drift off course because the, the winds of doctrine that are blowing out there are going to just do it. Okay, yes. Uh, There's a side question I happened to hear yesterday about the close of your program. Yeah. Okay. Did somebody challenge something you've written in that final phone call? Or was it not about you? I don't know. Well, I thought the final one was the one telling the story about having been to a Bob Larson. Yeah. The, the, the one that challenged was this Catholic who called in and wanted to use crucifixes to, 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 to deal with demons. Yeah. Uh, no, somebody came in and mentioned that they had gone to this Bob Larson meeting and, they were, and this lady thought that he was hypnotizing people or at least he would call them out and they'd get into this altered state and the demons would talk to them. So that's what we were talking about on the radio. Did you, anybody else hear that yesterday? I thought it was fun. I really like the other radio with Jan. We, we, we clicked pretty good. Uh, anyhow. <laughs> yeah, I'll have that Catholic lady call you. All right. <laughs> Jim. I was going to say, it took me off course. No, I was just thinking of this verse if you take it the other way around, it assumes that there is a course to follow. And you take it that way, and then Well, it could be either one. And it's the the matter, of the term, according to Lane, could either have to do with a ship to hold the ship toward port, or it could also mean to fasten anchors to the seabed. It could it could be either one. Either one's an okay thing. If the captain wasn't anchored, then it stays anchored. Later, and uh, we have another nautical metaphor later in Hebrews talks about the anchor of the soul. Later in Hebrews. More to stay put, but either way, you're not at anything besides being adrift. <laughs> so, staying on course. Passages to read. Dean, could you read Deuteronomy 4? Now, there's two verses, but they're kind of separated. 9 and 23. Deuteronomy 4, 9 and 23. Then late, 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13. Gods. 
and you're going to be judged. But just remember, I told you that this was going to happen. So take heed. It, how long does it take to forget what you just heard? <laughs> it just, I mean, Sunday just doesn't last for a whole week. We need the Word of God every day. When you introduce yourself to someone upstairs, when you sit down, it doesn't last long. Yeah, that's me too. But uh, so, so we need a continual uh, dose of the Word of God, so to speak, to keep us on course. Second Peter one twelve and thirteen. So as long as Peter's around, he's going to keep stirring them up, even though they've already heard it. I I was I'm reading a book for my next CIC article, and uh, this book now the Purpose Driven Life has now sold 11 million copies. And I'm having a hard time reading because I can't stand it. But um, it's it, it hard to read. I've been working on it for like three weeks and I just can't get through it because it's so annoying. But I noticed something in there that he said something in there that I've heard before that's absolutely wrong. And if people are often um, pushed off course by this statement. But basically he says um, something about what have you already been taught that you're not doing. Well, then the implication is, well, you don't need to learn anymore. You need to do whatever it is you've already been taught. So make ten action steps or whatever, how you're going to do something you're already taught. Now, what's wrong with that is the idea, for one thing, if you had to perfectly do whatever one thing it was first before you could learn anything else, you'd never get through the Beatitudes. I mean, the first time it, it says, you know, the, the, to always forgive or to be merciful... Well, if I can't learn anything else in the Bible until I'm perfectly merciful, well, then I'm just going to grind to a halt and sit there with my life trying to be merciful. The fact is, we never perfectly do everything in the Bible until we get our glorified bodies. And, and there is this implication that too much learning will keep you from doing what you already uh, heard and haven't done is, is very bad advice because what it's saying is um, the Christianity is sort of this how-to thing, and you take a step and you learn how to do that, and you get that perfected, then you learn the next step and you get that done, and you get that perfected, and you learn that. And, but it doesn't work that way because God is, through His Holy Spirit, working on our whole life about all kinds of things simultaneously. And the whole counsel of God is what helps us get there. The whole counsel of God helps us be forgiving, helps us be merciful, helps us be loving, helps us be diligent, and all the various things that we need simultaneously God's working on. And we need the words of God, all of it, all the time, because that's one of His means of grace. So the suggestion that um, don't, don't learn anymore because you haven't done what you already were taught is false. If that was the case, you might as well just quit reading the Bible and don't read it the rest of your life. Because uh, there's no perfect person that already does everything that they've learned. Yes. Well, I think that the reason that that book is sold like 11 million copies because that blends in so much with the Christian church today. The, the, the wishy-washy uh, uh, way that the uh, mainstream mega churches preach the word today. Uh, and it definitely does stylistically, and I think that there's something about the style that 
and we were talking about this little last night. I'm not 100 percent sure why this thing has sold 11 million copies, but it could be a backlash. In some ways, it's extremely authoritarian because he's telling you from A to Z how to live your life, and it's almost like somebody that people want somebody to dictate to them. And, and he doesn't ever really expound any verse of scripture. He has over a thousand scriptures in there, but doesn't explain any of them. He, he, the, the, the text is his teaching. You do this, you do this, you do this. Because the Bible says, and then there's some paraphrase that's not even close to what the Bible says. And so it's really this guy telling everybody how to live their life and how to be a good Christian. And it, it, it reminds me stylistically of this Dr. Phil. Have you ever seen Dr. Phil? Well, which is annoying to me, too. But it's, it's like somebody just saying, Browby should do this, do this, do this, do this. Come in. There's 10,000 commands in there about what we ought to do. I, I give up. Also, it's also a matter of, not what I want to do, but do art. Are you dedicated enough to God? Do you need to respond to this kind of question? Do you need okay, do you don't want to do it? Well, yeah, for example, I was just reading one where he says, all right, here's what you need to do. There's five things that you know you ought to be doing that you're not doing, and then set your goal, and then write down a piece of paper your action steps. How are you going to do that? I'm reading that. So, no, sorry, I'm not going to do it. Next chapter. Oh, no, this guy's not going to tell me how to live my life. I'm sorry. I, I'm not this lemming, this jumping on board with the other 11 million people. Uh, no, I'm not sorry about it. You know why? You know what else is wrong with this book? The things that God commands, he makes an option. And the things that God doesn't command, he commands. For instance, salvation. Salvation in the Bible is a command. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Now, in uh, Rick Warren's theology, salvation is a personal choice. He says, well, you know, think about this. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force you to do anything. And if you w would uh, like to know Jesus, then say this prayer. And if you say this prayer and you're sincere, then you'll be a Christian. But it's your choice. Well, that's not the gospel. All right. Well, and then, did you ever see anybody preach that way in Acts? So he backs off on the really strong commands of Scripture, like for salvation. But then when it comes to something like keeping a journal of your spiritual progress, he commands that. Do this. Keep this journal. and You need to do this. You need to do that. Excuse me. It's not optional whether you believe in Jesus for salvation. But it is optional whether you want to write a journal. Yeah. It's all screwed up. He binds what God doesn't bind, and he looses what God doesn't lose. I'm giving you a preview of my article. But I decided that I'm going to write the, the article is going to be about two books. Not that one, because I don't want to waste that much ink on this guy's book. I'm going, to, I'm going to give my readers a choice. There's two books out there right now. One of them sold 11 million, and the other one, I don't know how many, thousand. The One is called The Purpose Driven Life, and the other one is called Hard to Believe by MacArthur. And they both have an explanation of the gospel, but they're totally different. And I'm going to contrast the two books and then talk about the culture based on how different those books are and say, you know, I, I love them, hard to believe. I can't stand the other one. Where are you at? Yeah. 
if the guy is finding and losing and has them mixed up, wouldn't that be applicable for drifting away from the anchor because the anchor is bound to what God finds and the pressures that would pull us away from the anchor are the things that God doesn't find. Yeah, and even the means, I think, too, besides the binding and loosing as far as what's important, this, what Warren has tapped into, it runs deep in American evangelicalism all the way back to Finney. There's this vein of pietism that sounds so holy because it talks about the deeper life. And, and, and pietism is saying that there are these that, that there is this elite kind of Christian that if you do all these things, here's the way it's going to be, that is in contrast to the classical understanding that would come from Luther and uh, Whitfield and Edwards and uh, people like that, that is more based on means of grace, that, you know, we're really sinners, and that we, we need God's grace to keep us, and that none of us is that great and exalted over everybody else. We're all wretched sinners, sinners saved by grace. And if we avail ourselves of the means of grace, God will be gracious in our lives and he will change us and perfect us. Whereas pietism has this elite version of Christianity based on deeper commitment, higher order experiences, and then you do all these things and you're going to be a really great Christian. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. I think I do have performance anxiety. <laughs> I think what he said is, is, is a compliment to what I'm about to say, but I think that for years now, the health, the wealth, the faith movement has been telling us if you only have enough faith, yeah. you can achieve right. uh, either health or wealth and live in prosperity. Now there's a book to tell you how to do it because they haven't been able to. Verse 3, if we neglect 
so great a salvation. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was also confirmed to us by those who heard. Wow. First of all, spoken through angels. This is a reference to the very common idea and understanding amongst the Jews that the, that the law that was given to Moses on Sinai was given through uh, the agency of angels. They believed that very firmly. And so there's, there's a contrast here between the Old Covenant, which was considered to have been delivered by angels, and the New Covenant, which came directly from the incarnate Son of God himself. All right? And so there's a contrast between the Son and angels, which has been a thematic thing in the first part of Hebrews, that he's greater than angels. And now we have a contrast between the covenants. And uh, here's a quote from William Lane about that. Sometime prior to the first century, the conviction spread that angels had played a mediatorial role in the transmission of the law. It finds expressions as early as the Maccabean period in the Book of Jubilees, uh, when the content of the Torah is dictated by Moses by, quote, the angel of the presence. Stephen similarly speaks of the angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai in Acts 7, while Paul describes the law ordained by angels through an intermediary, Galatians 3.19, uh, Near, near the end of the first century, Josephus wrote, And for ourselves we have learned from God the most excellent of our teachings and the most holy part of the law, of our law by angels. And so, um, or ambassadors, so angels were uh, considered to have given the law. And so no first century Jew would dispute that point. And the author of Hebrews is pointing something out. Now he's talking here about the law and the word there, unalterable, in the Greek means legally valid. It's legally valid. In other words, what was given by these angels, or the angel to Moses, and he wrote it down, is uh, God's document that's legally valid, and that those who have received it are obligated to live by it, and they'll be judged by what's in it. All right? If they disobey, the judgments are prescribed. It's, uh, so unalterable means legally valid. And every transgression, therefore because it's legally valid, every transgression, which is a deliberate rejection and disobedience, receive a just recompense. Well, did that happen? <laughs> Read the Old Testament, yeah, card. Yeah, or deliberate rejection. Well, the, this is talking to the Hebrews, though, so the Hebrews are different because they have a specific uh, it's, Well, the deliberate issue has, goes back to that thing of numbers. Remember where, where there was a distinction between uh, unintentional and intentional sin? And the one was covered on the day of atonement by the, they would go and say, we're sinners, we know we haven't followed God's law perfectly, although we agree with it. And the blood was shed on the Day of Atonement, and the scapegoat sent out, and that person is forgiven. But it says the one who sins deliberately will keep his sin. So in other words, if somebody says, no, I don't, I reject God's law, he can't tell me this, I'm going to do what I want to do, that person is not forgiven. 
that person keeps the sin. Isn't that Numbers 15? It's very important, by the way, it's a background to Hebrews, because Hebrews alludes to this issue of numbers later on, about willful sin, going on sinning willfully. Yeah, here it says, Numbers 15 and verse 27. Let me, as long as we alluded to that, I think it's very good cross reference. The difference between intentional and unintentional. Numbers 15:27. Here's what it says. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law, verse 29, for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and shall be cut off from the people, because he despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment, he shall be cut off and his guilt is upon him. So there is a clear distinction between somebody agreeing with God's law, believing that it's from God and it ought to be followed, but yet falling short because of human sinfulness and weakness, and therefore, but going with their offering and confessions, I need this, I need the Lord, they're forgiven. And the one who's defiant, that one ends up like Korah. Remember what happened with Korah? <laughs> he dropped right into Sheol, uh, uh, right on the spot. So that would be the just recompense, it would be the, for the defiant sin. Now, this is a lesser to greater argument. So when it says, if it was true that if angels gave this law to Moses and it was written down, and people were judged by that, whether or not they'd listen, how much greater trouble will we in if we don't listen to what was given by God himself in the person of Messiah? It's a lesser to greater. This is this would be it would be worse. It would be way worse to not listen to Jesus than it would be to not listen to Moses. Because Jesus is greater than Moses. Does that make sense? That's a good Hebrew way of arguing. Lesser to greater or greater to lesser. They did it all the time. Um, earlier you asked us to read Deuteronomy um, 4.23, but I think that the next verse is very important. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. And we have to know that he says it, do it. Yeah, that, by the way, is quoted in Hebrews 2, in Hebrews 12. Our God is consuming fire. So much, our society has become so loose that I know I used to threaten my kids, you don't do it, I'll, you know, but that was too much work, or the neighbor came over, or some such thing. And we really have to keep our word as an example of what God is doing. Okay, in our parenting. Okay, I got some cross references for Hebrews 2 2. Karan, Numbers, oh, we just did it, Numbers 15. Alright, sorry, uh, let's go to Numbers 16 then. Karan, Numbers 16, 31 to 35. I got ahead of myself, I had that one written down and I forgot that I did. Uh, Keith, Numbers 21, 6. And um, Sandy, 1 Corinthians 10, 5 through 12. And then um, just one Bible there, so we'll go over to Jude 1 and verse 5.
Okay, our first one is number 
Now this warning in Hebrews is warning about neglecting messianic salvation. Because they're thinking, well, I don't really need Messiah. I'll just go back and do the Jewish stuff that we used to do, and that'll be enough. There are people that, you know, uh, there are people that do this. We can debate whether they were ever really saved or not, but the warning is valid, however you understand that. When I got the, I wrote that letter to the editor. By the way, I'm still getting feedback from that from around the country. I got a, I got a, some mail from a guy in Florida who read it. Uh, this, he liked it. But anyhow, one person, this atheist, that wrote me after that letter went into the paper, suggested that I read this book that was written by an evangelical who is now an atheist. So they're out there. I mean, they're, they're, uh, Dan was here, he can tell us about a friend. He has a friend who used to be a charismatic pastor who's now an atheist. And, uh, so there, there are people out there who decided they don't need Messiah, they don't need salvation, that they can, they'll just find living life without God. And a uh, pretty scary thing to think about when you read this. Um, was that paper, or the article, was it published other papers? Or? I don't think so. I have no clue how they found it, whether it was the online version or whether they used to live here and they still get the paper. To keep. Some people, when they move away, will subscribe to keep up with their hometown. I don't know if it's on the internet or not. I've never looked. But I got I got one from Pennsylvania. I got one from Florida. It's amazing. Anyhow, let's go to verse 3 here. This one is, uh, I think, one of the more profound warnings in Hebrews. There are five of these warnings about apostasy. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, and then it was confirmed by those who heard. We have a lot of uh, com- you know things to consider out of this verse. It certainly talks about the inspiration of Scripture that we have the very words of God, of the Lord Jesus, and those eyewitnesses, the apostles. But first of all, we have a rhetorical question: How shall we escape? What's the implied answer? <laughs> you won't. <laughs> yeah, you won't. If Korah and his crew didn't escape because they rebelled against Moses, how are we going to escape or rebel against Jesus Christ? We can't. So there's people that do this. There are, there are people who uh, were in, uh, even there, I've talked to people who had friends in Messianic congregations who decided to reject Christ and go back to just Judaism without Christ. It's uh and there, there are Gentiles who are going, somebody was telling me about a Gentile who was going to a Messianic congregation and decided to reject Christ and embrace Judaism. Isn't that what Bob Dylan did? Yeah, he went back to Yeah, he, he, he had this thing about being saved and he made a big deal out of it and wrote a world album called Saved, Bob Dylan. Then he rejected it. Jesus. 
Well, there were people like that, by the way. Even at the time of the apostles, one of the first places that the gospel went was the God-fearing Gentiles. There were people who, in the ancient world, saw the moral law of Judaism and saw that it was a much better way to live than the, than the debauchery of the Greeks and Romans, and who, but didn't want to become proselytes because they'd have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, including the ceremonial law. So they were called God-fearers. And they believed in the God of Israel. And they believed generally in the moral law that it was a better way to live. But they didn't become proselytes and become full Jewish uh, pra- practices, uh, you know, including the sacrifices and everything that needed to be done. That's what uh, Cornelius was. And they were some of the early recipients of the gospel. But I think likewise there will be people who will look at Christianity and think that the teachings of Jesus is a better way to live. And uh, be willing to embrace the basic moral principles, but without the blood atonement. It would be just like those God-fearers in the first century. They really had no blood atonement, but they had the moral lifestyle. Why would somebody be attracted to that? Well, because you can see the, the results of debauchery and sin and what's going on is, is harmful. And you might want to look at it's easier. It's easier? For me personally, when I lived a sinful life, it was easier for me to live a sinful life than it is for me now to follow the Lord. Following the Lord is as hard as to do. Okay. You, 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 get, you, get, uh, you get so caught up in your everyday sinful nature that it just becomes, you know, just... Yeah, you don't have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil if you're in it. But there are certain people who would just like to have a little bit of mitigation of that, but not the whole redemptive part of it. So, so it says, how shall we escape? The implied answer? We won't. Now, the word neglect is important here. If we neglect, um, the, the, the Greek is an aorist participle, so it's a point in time. How shall we neglect, how shall we escape having neglected, would be a literal translation. Having neglected. So great a salvation. Now neglect here means does not mean reject. That's what's really interesting about this verse. It doesn't mean reject. It means to show a lack of concern for. To let it die the death of neglect. In the version that you don't like that it says ignore. Ignore. Okay. You have the dearly inspired version. <laughs> <laughs> That may have a good good verse down there. Yeah, that's a good one. Ignore. And so it isn't talking about the person who says, I reject Christ, in in that sense. It's talking about the person who doesn't see Messianic salvation as something worth attending to or or would simply be apathetic about it or neglectful. It's, It's not that big of a deal. That it sits here on the sideline. Now, that, that in, in that regard, doesn't that say something about this whole seeker movement? That the whole central aspect of Christianity, which is the blood atonement, is not even heard from the pulpit in a year? Isn't that neglecting salvation? Is there any connotation of adding? 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 Is there any connotation of adding?
I'm not sure. I didn't do a full range of meaning study on that, but it's everybody that um, commented on it, the scholars, that said it, that it had to do with a lack of concern or neglect is not a bad translation. But it doesn't say reject. So you know, you could be lost even though you think Jesus is a pretty good guy. You know, you can go to church and sort of believe in Jesus and still be lost. Right? Well, the neglect uh, implies that you are fully aware of something that exists as well as you know. Yeah. You know, to know about but not. It's there, you know about it, so To know about it but not take it seriously would be a way of probably describing it. Yeah, there you go. Showing lack of concern or indifference. So the concept then to bring people out of their neglect or indifference is to say, you don't do this, you die. Oh, maybe this is important. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not talking about necessarily ignorance because it says that the word was first spoken to the Lord. It's a reference back to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. That God has spoken in the person of Messiah, and so that there's certainly no nobody can claim that Chad didn't hear about it. If indeed they have, so they know about the, the nature of this messianic salvation, but they show lack of concern about it. His letters already told them about it. Whoever whoever reads his letters neglecting it, they don't follow it. Yeah. So how shall we escape we neglect benefits so great a salvation? And here, great as salvation is, again, this lesser to greater argument that what was provided in the Old Testament was a very good thing and it was from God, but this is even greater. That, that God sent his own son who lived a sinless life and to die for our sins and to be publicly raised, publicly and bodily raised from the grave and to speak the very words of God to us, the person of Messiah, is a greater, more uh, clear, more powerful revelation of God and his salvation than what they had in the Old Testament. And if people in the Old Testament didn't listen and they dropped right straight into Sheol without any intervening steps, and, uh, and that's how serious that was, and this is even greater salvation, well, how should we escape? And the answer is, well, there's no conceivable way of escaping if you neglect salvation. It's pretty sobering, in my opinion. Yeah. Sobering for Christians also, I think. If I'm not mistaken, this can also be transferred over to our sanctification, you know, our salvation is taken care of. How shall we neglect the consequence of sin if we continue to sin? Great. If we don't, if we neglect, even as saved, if we neglect the message of Christ and his, his apostles by not, have, not having it in our hearts and minds, that we certainly will not progress in sanctification either. And I think there's consequences to that. Dear Lord, help us. You know, I think we should pray that we continue. Dear Lord, this is sobering. And how can we not but fear you and understand, Lord, we need you, and we need your forgiveness, and we need power, and we need changed lives, and we do believe in Messiah, and we want to be like him. Help us, Lord, not to neglect our salvation. Amen. Amen.
After it was at the first open through the Lord, here that is Jesus the Messiah. Right? He spoke face to face with humans. We saw him, touched him tangibly, it says in Church John 1. His words were heard by many witnesses. He ordained that his apostles would write down his very words, and so we know that what the salvation is about is the Lord spoken. And then confirmed by those who heard. So here we have uh, authoritative apostles. This also would be evidence that Paul did not write Hebrews. Because Paul would not put himself that far away. This, this, so this, whoever's writing Hebrews is not claiming to have been one of the apostles. Well, what verse is that again? Hebrews 2 and verse 3. By confirmed by those who heard. If you go to Galatians, okay, uh, that's what my cross references. Noel, could you look up Galatians 1.12? Paul did not claim to have gotten this by those who heard. He claimed to have gotten it right from the Lord himself. If it was confirmed, you can still have it be confirmed by another source as well. Right, it was confirmed to us, but it doesn't seem like how Paul would talk to himself, would talk about himself. Plus, hardly anybody believes Paul wrote Hebrews anymore, by the way. That's cruel? Well, he's somebody. Can I think? I retract. Okay, Galatians 1, 1, Galatians 1, uh, 12. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Right. So Paul claimed to have gotten it directly from he went up to Jerusalem later and had it confirmed. Well, he did, yeah. So, think that for what it's worth, because that's not really not what this verse is about. This is just a little clue about who wrote Hebrews. It's not, it's not the authorial intent here. Yeah. Yeah. Hebrews was Right. Does it strength rest with this line to the rest of the Bible? How is it? How is it? Yeah. How is it canonical? Um, it's not necessary that, as far as what ended up in the New Testament canon, Luke wasn't an apostle. All right? But he got the material from eyewitnesses. Mark probably got his material from Peter. So the criteria wasn't that an apostle actually wrote the material, but that, that it had an apostolic source. All right? So the author of Hebrews got it from apostles who were eyewitnesses, that's satisfactory. Because otherwise we have to throw out Luke, for sure. James. And Acts. James is an apostle, isn't he? He was, was the one of the Okay. So, there we go. Okay, let's, let's look at this idea again carefully here. So we have the greater and lesser and greater. In the angels there was punishment. The Lord himself spoke. There's going to be greater punishment. Greater salvation means greater responsibility and greater peril. Okay? Greater blessings, to be sure. In fact, it's a great salvation. The messianic salvation is the greatest of all possible ideas of salvation. The word salvation means to be rescued from serious peril. Its meaning is determined by the context. Paul said Paul was saved in the shipwreck. Well, if you're in peril of drowning and you don't drown, then you were saved from drowning. But the peril, what was the peril that we were facing 
hell, right? So the great salvation is the one that saves you from hell. The greatest all of all possible perils. So the greatest salvation is the one that saves you from that. And it's, it's a, so you have a greater responsibility because it's a great privilege and it's a great salvation and so there's a great responsibility to take it seriously. And it makes for greater accountability also. Greater accountability. Too much is given, much is required. You know, when you go through a really, really difficult situation or a profound situation, it, it forces the issue about who you're going to be. Uh, for example, if there's a war and your country's threatened, you're basically forced to be a hero or a coward. <coughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I was just thinking about that. We're going through a really, really tough time right now. Really tough time. And, uh, and I was talking to Diane about it. I said, you know, when you, when you come into something like this, it forces you, if you're not doing very well, it forces you to do a lot better or to die. It's, you know, you, either, you just can't be neutral. You either have to rise to the occasion and trust God and do what you have to do, even though it's very difficult, or just be a coward and run away from it. And so, in a sense, the fact that Messiah came does that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that feast where you're either going to be judged or judged, yes. They're using the term greater as a comparative. Yeah. Does that imply that there's another kind of salvation, like some kind of salvation in the Old Testament that's still an option? There's a type of that precursor, but now it's fulfilled. Yeah, it, it, it's not suggesting that the people in the Old Testament were not saved by faith or some other way. But their messianic salvation was only through trusting in the types and, and, and what they knew back then. Whereas now we're, and they, they were required to do that. And now we're seeing Messiah himself. Because John the Baptist was the greatest among them because he's not the real one. If you say these are the same words that John the Baptist was pointing to greater than what they had before him. Yeah, a jam. Seeing the reality of of God yeah. as opposed to 